Our theme this year, as we come to the beginning of every month, uh, parenthesis, can you believe it's August already, but uh, beginning of every month, we have been doing our series, Hope Starts Here, because after a year like last year, we could certainly need some hope in our lives. And so uh, we are spending the the first uh, of every month talking about how we can have hope uh, in Christ. This morning's lesson is going to be how we can have hope when life does not go according to plan. Uh, What does God want us to know and what does God want us to do when things do not match up with what we thought life was going to be? And how can we push forward in such circumstances? There are a lot of people that we could look at in the scriptures as a study of how they handled the trials that they went through and how they dealt with life as it didn't go according to their plan. But the individual I would like to look at is Joseph this morning. You have your Bibles. We're going to start in Genesis 37 and we're going to ultimately end at the very end of Genesis and Genesis 50 in our study this morning. Now I will put my disclaimer out that in doing one lesson over Joseph is a serious disservice to the magnitude of all the material that is given about him. In fact, I did nine lessons on him about eight years ago because there is so much here in this text about Joseph and how God deals with him. But I want to take a step back and just observe the whole of his life and to watch how Joseph moves through his difficulties to come to an amazing conclusion as his life certainly does not go according to plan. When you're in Genesis chapter 37, you begin with Joseph as only a 17-year-old person. He's just a teenager. And immediately we are told that the brothers of Joseph hate him. They do not like him at all. Jacob has favoritism toward Joseph For lots of reasons, mainly because he is the son of Rachel. And so with that in mind, there is this kindness that is given to Joseph and gifts that are given to Joseph that the other brothers do not have. And so they hate him. But that hatred intensifies when God begins giving Joseph some dreams. And the essence of those dreams is that uh, his family are all going to bow down to him. The brothers certainly take umbrage at that. Even Joseph's father, Jacob, does not agree with that. In chapter 37 and verse 10, Jacob rebukes Joseph and says, you really think that that's going to happen? We're all going to bow down to you? Well, that leads to an opportunity for the brothers as they are out in the field one day. And Joseph, and Joseph is told by Jacob to go out and check on the brothers and see how he's out, how, how they are doing. The brothers see Joseph coming. They conspire now as they see this dreamer coming. They conspire to kill him. Reuben intervenes and says, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a pit instead. We're told his mentality was he was going to come back later and get him out of the pit. However, Judah, the fourth brother, he sees a band of traders coming along and decides, you know, killing him has no financial advantage. We should sell him in instead. And so what you see is as Reuben thinks he's in the pit during this time, Judah goes and gets him and sells him into slavery, inevitably putting Joseph at the hands of the Egyptians through that sale. Now, 
Sometimes we'll have the tendency when you're in Genesis 38 to go, why is Genesis 38 here and see it as a a detraction from the storyline? But chapter 38 is really important because chapter 38 wants to tell you what a despicable person Judah is. You're supposed to know that. He is a terrible guy. But that plays to a very important future of where things are going to go in Joseph's life. But to know from the beginning, Judah's not a good guy. He's visiting prostitutes. He has sold his brother into slavery. With Joseph gone, they take his robe, they tear it up, they put some blood on it, and they go back to Jacob. And they don't say that, well, your son died, but they say, "Uh, is this your son's garment? And Jacob draws the conclusion that an animal has destroyed his son and goes into great mourning and wailing over that. Now, at this point, you would say life is pretty terrible. Your brothers hate you. They wanted to kill you. Instead, they sold you. And now you are living in Egypt and you are a slave in Egypt because of the hatred of your brothers. But we have a saying in life that things can go from bad to worse. And that's certainly what happens for Joseph next. As things seem to be terrible for him. You'll notice chapter 39 says something very interesting in verse 2. Because you would think that certainly God is not with Joseph. If all of these bad things have happened to him. Certainly God must hate him to allow this to take place. For uh, him to be sold off into slavery. And his brothers hate him. But chapter 39 in verse 2 tells us that even though all this has happened. The Lord was with him. Even as disaster is falling upon Joseph in his life, God is with him. And God is with him to such a degree that he becomes successful as he is sold into the house of a man named Potiphar. And he begins to work there and you would think, okay, maybe things are turning around, but things certainly get worse. We are told that Joseph is a handsome man. And every day, Potiphar's wife is attempting to seduce him. Every day, Joseph is refusing until finally it comes to a point where Potiphar's wife grabs Joseph's clothes and says, come lie with me. Joseph leaves those garments behind and runs out the door only for Potiphar's wife to claim that he attempted to rape her, which then causes the husband to have Joseph thrown in Pharaoh's prison. And so just as you might think that things are bad, things get really bad. And you might think, well, now certainly this shows that God is not with Joseph. And certainly uh, God has has left him. But you will notice chapter 39 and it told in verse, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. Even though things look terrible in his life, even though nothing is going according to plan, we're told the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And so now he's in the prison of Pharaoh. And you would think that things really couldn't get much worse for Joseph at this point. You've gone from home to slave, slave to prisoner. Surely he has hit rock bottom at this point. 
But we're going to notice that things can still get worse for Joseph. While he is serving in, in the, the prison, we see that Pharaoh in chapter 40 gets angry with two of his officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And while those two men are down there in Pharaoh's prison, they both have dreams that no one understands or can interpret. However, Joseph says, by the power of God, I am able to interpret your dreams. And he tells the chief cupbearer that what's going to happen is in three days, your dream means that in three days you are going to be restored back to the right hand of Pharaoh. Everything is going to go better for, for you. You will be returned. And Joseph says to him, when you return to your rightful place before Pharaoh, Remember me. Remember me. Tell Pharaoh about me down here. The chief baker, hearing such great interpretation, also comes to Joseph and says, well, tell me what the meaning of my dream is. And his interpretation, not so good. He says, in three days, your head is going to be lifted from your body. And so a positive for the chief cupbearer, a negative for the baker. And in three days... All those things exactly happen in three days. We see the baker beheaded and in three days, the cupbearer goes back to his rightful place. And I just want you to imagine for a moment after those three days, when the cupbearer has left the prison and has come back to the presence of Pharaoh, the hope that Joseph would have at this moment to be able to finally get out of these terrible conditions. This is my chance finally. He's going to remember me. He's going to get me out of this place. And maybe my life will finally turn to the upswing. Chapter 40 verse 23 says, The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And he doesn't forget him for a day. And he doesn't forget him for a week. He doesn't forget him for a month. We are told that a whole two years go by. Two years go by. The, the way you thought you were going to be delivered, the glimmer of hope that you had, that things were going to finally turn around in your life. I just imagine how those are being dashed as week turns into month after month after month and you begin to think I'm not getting out of here at all my hope was false and just when I thought I had an opportunity of reversal it's not going to happen two more years unfold in the life of Joseph as you come into chapter 41 this puts Joseph now at 30 years old please consider 13 of your years of your life have been thrown away. And in our culture, we'd say it's the 13 best years of your life from 17 to 30. There's your youthful years have all been lost in slavery and in prison. He is now 30 years old and the Pharaoh at that moment, he has a dream and his dream causes the cupbearer to go. Oh, yeah. I know of a guy back in the prison two years ago who is able to interpret those dreams. 
And so a messenger is sent down to the prison to get Joseph, clean him up and bring him up into the presence of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked him, are you able to interpret dreams? And Joseph says, no, but God is able to interpret the dreams. And I will be able to give you an answer for what your dream means. And the meaning of Pharaoh's dream is that there are going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of prosperity, economic upswing as they are able to enjoy great uh, prosperity that time. But when the seven years are done, there's going to be a severe seven year famine. And so Joseph puts forward the plan of how he would be able to carry Egypt through this difficulty By storing up for those seven years until the seven year famine comes. Pharaoh is enthralled by Joseph, places him second in command, tells Joseph, there's nobody higher than you but me. You now are in charge of Egypt. And I want you to spend a moment to consider where Joseph is because the text wants you to know Joseph's mentality at this moment. We're told that he's 30 years old. We're told that he marries an Egyptian woman. That Egyptian woman comes from the daughter of, is the daughter of an Egyptian priest of the pagan Egyptian worshipers, priest of On. Marries her, has two kids, Manasseh and Ephraim. But what he says about the naming of these kids tells you about the mental place where Joseph is at at this moment. He names his first child Manasseh and says, here's why I named him Manasseh. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Let that sink into what he's saying. I have forgotten my family, my dad, and my brothers, the whole house. I've forgotten the pain, I've forgotten the hardship, and I have forgotten that house. Ephraim, and God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Essentially, forget all that, and God has blessed me here in Egypt. God has given me success here in Egypt. That is an important mentality for what Joseph is going to do next. As after the seven years of plenty go on, the famine now strikes. And we are told that there are difficulties all over the land and certainly difficulties back in Canaan. Jacob sends 10 of the brothers down to Egypt to be able to buy grain because the famine is so severe. And when they come and present themselves before Joseph, Joseph immediately recognizes them, but the brothers do not recognize him. And it's important to see what Joseph now does. We are first told that Joseph speaks roughly to them, calls them spies, and throws them in prison for three days. And I'd say a little bit of payback. (laughs) Come down here. He's mean to them. Speaks roughly to them, the text says. Calls them out as spies, throws them in prison. 
After they are brought out of prison after the three days, he lets them buy the grain and says, says to them, I don't believe you're not spies. And the only way that you're going to prove that you're not spies is you said that you had one other brother who was left behind. If you bring him back next time, then I'll believe that you're not spies. But right now, I think you've come to spy out the land and you're traitorous to this nation. In the midst of all of that, Reuben says to the brothers, this is payback for what we did to our brother Joseph. Did I not tell you not to lay a hand on him? Now, those brothers don't realize that Joseph can speak that Hebrew and hears that. So rather than leaving the oldest in prison for the whole time while the brothers go back, he takes Simeon, the second oldest, and puts him in prison for the whole time while the brothers go back with the food. And we're told that it's not like they come back a few days later for Simeon. No, they go back with an amazing amount of grain and harvest, everything that they've received from Egypt. And they stay there and they go through all of that food until finally the famine is catching up to them again. And Jacob says to the brothers, you've got to go back and buy more grain. And the brothers say, wait a minute, if we go back, the one down there said, we've got to bring the youngest. And Jacob says, okay, essentially you might as well because we're going to die if we don't. Go ahead and take him down. And the brothers all say to Jacob, we'll protect him. We'll take care of him. And so they head back down to Egypt one more time. They come back to Egypt. Benjamin comes along with them. Joseph has an association with Benjamin because the two of them are the only sons of Rachel. And so Joseph now comes up with yet another plan. And his plan is this. After they buy all the grain, he tells one of his servants to put a silver cup of his in Benjamin's sack. And as they go out of Egypt, I want you to overtake them and say, whoever has the silver cup in their bag, that one, just that one, is going to be my prisoner and has to come back to Egypt. And so the brothers go on their way. All of them go on their way back. The plan works out perfectly. The, the brothers are overtaken by the Egyptian servants. They tell them, whoever has the silver cup, they're coming back to me. Who would do such a thing? The brothers are outraged. None of us have stolen anything. They begin to all open their bags one by one until they open Benjamin's bag. And lo and behold, there's the silver cup. And to Joseph's surprise, rather than abandoning Benjamin, all of the brothers come back. All of them come back to Egypt. And what is particularly stunning is Joseph is saying, it's only him, only Benjamin. He's the one that stole the cup. Only he needs to stay here. And you can imagine in Joseph's mind what he believes, that they are now treating Benjamin like the way they treated him. 
Since Benjamin's a son of Rachel and of Jacob, certainly he's getting the same mistreatment. They'll be happy to get rid of him. And Joseph and Benjamin can live down here happily ever after. But all the brothers come back and the strangest thing happens. Judah stands up and says, you can't take him. You can't. It'll kill our dad. You take me instead and let him go. And when Judah, the scoundrel, the one who had sold him, says those words, Joseph finally breaks and reveals himself to the brothers. Now, I want you to get a sense of where Joseph has come at this moment. Because how the life of Joseph draws its conclusion is powerful with all of that setup. Once Joseph reveals himself, absolute dread comes over all of the brothers. It is a big oh no moment. And for the rest of the time, they live in fear, but they are comforted by one thing. The brothers are sent back to go get Jacob so that the whole of the family will live in Egypt and they will be cared for. But then you come to chapter 49 and dad dies. And when Jacob dies, you see the fear renewed in chapter 50, as was read for us this morning, because we are told In chapter 50 and verse 15, the brothers, once their father is dead, they say to each other, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, remember, Joseph's number two. He can do anything he wants. He could do anything he wants to these brothers. He's already mistreated them, imprisoned them, set them up with, with, the, with the silver cup. He could have them killed and nobody in Egypt would care or know the better. But here's what Joseph says to them. Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Now listen to this. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now here's my big question. And the hub of what our study is this morning. How could Joseph comfort his brothers and speak kindly to them after they have completely wrecked his life? After all the evil that they had done to him, Joseph is able to speak kindly, to comfort them, And it even tells us that he says he essentially makes a promise that I'm going to take care of you and your little ones. I'm going to make sure you are all provided for. How could he do that when all of that has happened against him? And I want us to observe two statements that Joseph makes at this moment that is able to give us hope 
when life doesn't go according to plan. I think when you look at the life of Joseph, there's absolutely none of it that went according to plan. I don't think that Joseph ever grew up with a vision of being prime minister of Egypt. I don't think he ever grew up with a vision of being sold into slavery or ever envisioned that he'd be accused of rape falsely while in Egypt. As nothing has gone according to the way he would have looked at life. But here are the two things that he understands. Number one, in verse 19, he says, do not fear for am I in the place of God? What Joseph understands is so amazing at this moment because Joseph has the power to do whatever he wants and yet he is not going to make them pay. He says, I'm not going to punish you. And as you read that, would you not say, hey, Joseph, you have every right to do that to him. I mean, nobody read. Well, they put him in prison for three days. You'd go, well, that's the least you could have done to him. Look at what they did to you. They wrecked your life. Look at the evil that they had purposed against you. And yet Joseph is able to say, it's not my place to punish. It's not my place to do something to you for what you have done. And I want you to hold that idea in your mind for a moment. Because other people can really mess up our lives. Other people can do awful, evil things to us. And what other people do and the decisions that they make and the actions that they take can have a direct, dramatic impact that can forever change our lives forever changed them. Like Joseph, life is forever changed. Everything that he ever thought his life would be, every vision of his future, completely dashed by these brothers. And we can want the other person to pay for what they've done. We want the other person to get what they deserve. And I think it is so amazing that we see Joseph understand That he has no right to use his power for punishment, anger, or vengeance. He has all the power in the world to do whatever he pleases with these people. Now dad's dead, so he can't say no, no, no. Nobody's going to stop Joseph at this moment. But he understands Am I in the place of God, even with the power that I possess, I do not have the right to punish, to vent my wrath, or to show vengeance for what they have done. And this is the essence of what the scriptures are constantly trying to tell us. Apostle Paul says, never repay evil for evil. Now, I like to read that with a loophole. Don't repay evil for evil unless they do something really bad. You know. Now, if it gets really bad, okay, we won't look. It's all right. Don't repay evil for evil, but if they say this, do that, betray you, it's okay. Don't repay evil for evil, but if your brothers hate you, sell you into slavery and wreck your life, do you think a little evil's okay? 
Joseph has come to an awareness that even with his power, it is not his right and it is not his position to punish, to vent anger, or to execute vengeance. Friends, there's no loophole that allows us to retaliate for evil that is done. There is no loophole for us is that, well, if the evil is really bad, then it's okay to lash out. Then it's okay to vent our anger. Then it's okay to make them pay. Then it's okay to bring out our punishment against them. And I think it is so important to just recognize our position in that. And that's why the Apostle Paul would continue this next line is that you would leave it to God. Vengeance is his. He will repay. And Joseph understands that at this moment. As his first answer to the brothers is, don't fear. I'm not in the place of God. That's not my job. It's not for me to punish you for what evil you've done. That's left to God. And notice the rest of what he says that also gives hope. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, two things I want to really settle in on this. First of all, notice, Joseph does not absolve the fact that the brothers did evil. You meant evil. He doesn't say, you know, I know you had a good heart. No, you did not have a good heart. Well, I know things maybe got out. No, you did evil. He doesn't absolve him of it. But notice what he says. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I want this to be the big point. I've got a few sub points left, but this to be your big takeaway. Because Joseph just said something so stunning. That just because life does not go according to plan does not mean it's not going according to God's plan. That's what he said. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And Joseph comes to that recognition once they come back and plead for the life of Benjamin. Only at that moment do you see a shift in Joseph. Notice it in chapter 45 and in verse 4, what he says to them. After he reveals himself to the brothers and the brothers are terrified, first thing Joseph says, he says, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Notice no absolving of what you've done. For God sent me. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Please listen. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
Now, three sentences ago, he just said they did send him there. You sold me here. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What Joseph comes to understand through more than 13 years of pain is that God had a plan, that God's purposes were being carried out and that God had sent him there for a very purpose. The brothers were culpable. They did evil. I do enjoy that Joseph keeps saying that. You did this. You did evil. It was wrong. But friends, God can take the evil and use it for good. God can take the evil that happens. And he can use it for good. And if we ever question that truth, if we are ever wondering about that, the greatest proof of that is the cross. Jewish leaders meant it for evil. Roman leaders meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Judas meant it for evil. God meant it for good. The cross proves to us how we can have evil happen to us and yet God carry out his plans and purposes through the evil and carry out the good. Which tells us then that when we are in these moments, when life begins to unravel, when things go from bad to worse, when the rug gets pulled out from under us so that we lose all hope, God still has you in that moment. God still has you in that moment. The text wanted to be clear. God was still with Joseph. As each thing went wrong, the text said God was still with him and showed him kindness and was still blessing him. Now, from all externals, everybody watching on the outside, what would you say? God has abandoned you and God must hate you. Look at what happened to you. And God says, no, that's not what that means. That just because life is not going according to plan does not mean that it's not going according to God's plan. That God can still be with you. That God can accomplish his plans through you. And will we have the faith to believe it? And that's why I wanted to show you where Joseph came from and why we needed the full of the story. Because I want you to see in the beginning, Joseph spoke harshly, called them spies, threw them in prison, kept Simeon in prison for who knows how many years until the brothers come back, only to conspire for a plan to keep Benjamin in Egypt with him. It took Joseph quite a bit of time to come to the end of the circumstance and look back and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I don't believe he saw that early on. 
And the way he treats his brothers doesn't seem to indicate that. When the brothers show up, he doesn't go, hey, everybody, God meant this for good. I'm so glad you're here. That's not how that went. It took time to draw the conclusion. And that's why this message of Joseph is here. Is that God wants us to have hope when life doesn't go according to plan. To see that through the life of Joseph, to see through the life of Jesus, to see through the life of so many of these people of faith, that God is still with you when life doesn't go according to plan. And that God is still accomplishing his purposes and accomplishing his will when life does not go according to plan. I suppose we could probably take a survey and try to remember how we thought our lives would all go when we were teenagers, the vision that we had of what our future would be. And probably be able to stand now here on the other side and go, my life did not go anywhere near what I thought it would be. Nowhere near. But has God been still accomplishing his purposes in your life, even though life hasn't gone according to plan? He will and he does. And that is the hope that we have. The hope that we know no matter what happens, People can do all kinds of things, mean all kinds of evil to us. And God can use that to still accomplish his will in our very lives. Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, this is a truth that is awfully difficult to keep in our minds. And Lord, it is often a challenge to our faith. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts to always see that you are accomplishing your plan and your will in this world and in our lives, even when we don't think things are going according to plan. Lord, I pray that you would give us a far greater faith, a greater strength, a greater encouragement to look to you, especially in difficult times, and to see your hand at work. Lord, help us to be people who who do not repay evil for evil, who do not retaliate when people do awful things to us. Lord, we pray that we would be patient and merciful. Help us to be compassionate and tenderhearted. Help us to leave things in your hands. Lord, we know you are the great judge over all the earth. Lord, it's not our place to use our power to injure others. God, forgive us for how many times we've done that. Forgive us for how many times we use position and power and authority to hurt other people. Lord, we pray that we would be humble like Jesus and that we would submit to your will and submit to one another. And Lord, give us the faith to trust you that no matter what happens, we can still have hope that you are still with us and you are still accomplishing your will. Help us in that effort. Help us to keep that in our mind and forgive us as we fall short of what you want us to be when things don't go according to plan. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I, I wish I, 
I wish I knew that lesson of Joseph in my teenage years. It would have made a lot of difficulties a lot easier. And that truth of what God can do in your life in the midst of your pain and your suffering and the evil that people can do to you in times of loss can be so comforting and so transforming. We encourage you to come to Jesus this morning because that is the great hope that we have. That is the great hope that lies before us is that God is sovereign over all of the earth, that God is accomplishing his will, that God has not forgotten us, he has not gone to sleep, but that we can put our hope and trust in him. We want you to have that hope. Turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Can we help you do that anyway? Won't you let us know? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?